Flugelbinder create educational programmes to create change for people and planet. Flugelbinder started with Brad and Ian building conservation trips for students due to their love for the natural world. But they soon realised the power of travel to connect young people to global issues. It's through these connections and first-hand experiences that real change can happen. Flugelbinder performs sustainability audits, design and deliver workshops and run sustainable trips all over the world, educating students about their social and environmental impact. Flugelbinder, changing travel for future generations. Hello and welcome to JogPod. Today we're joined by Dr. Bethan Davies, who's a senior lecturer in physical geography, quaternary science at Royal Holloway, the University of London. And you're also director of the MSc Quaternary Science in the Centre for Quaternary Research. Thanks for joining us today, Bethan. Morning. Good morning. Um, just for the benefit of our listeners, this is going to sound a little bit like uh, this is your life. You're a, a glacial geologist and your research focuses on the interaction between glaciers and climate over multiple timescales. Um, and you're, well, you've got a range of specialisms, but you specialise in ice sheets and, and glacier reconstruction in temperate and in high latitudes. So your current research at the moment, it, your research interests really, they're orientated towards the Antarctic, the Patagonian ice sheet, and the last British Irish ice sheet. So you must get to travel incredibly around the globe to some fantastic places. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very lucky. I'm, I'm very privileged to have had the opportunity to do three seasons in Antarctica. Um, and I've done a similar number of seasons in Patagonia um, and also short seasons in places like Iceland and Greenland and tons of fieldwork in the UK, all over the UK. So that's always been a privilege and a pleasure to have the opportunity to do that and to work with really interesting people in all these different parts of the world. And presumably a lot of those photographs that you've taken are ones that are on that wonderful Antarctic Glaciers website. We will put a link to this, it's um, antarcticglaciers.org and I want to talk to you much more about that later. But um, it's, it's such an amazing resource for A-level geography teachers and, and it's it's you, isn't it, largely, who keeps that going? Yeah, this is, this is my, my project, my passion. Um, and I, I set it up in 2012 and I've run it ever since then. And I have been uh, really lucky to have had some great people to, to help. So um, I've had guest contributions from various people and I've also received some funding from various educational charities and places like that who've allowed me to... Uh, uh, pay for web development services to build website make it look very professional and also to bring other people in to help write content and deliver new content um, and so we we're constantly trying to improve the website to understand what people need and to and to build it and continue it and all the pictures are uh, pictures a lot of the photographs are ones that i've taken myself in the field and i've it's been lucky to go into the field with people who are good at photography and you can see what they do and then try and try and copy it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's i think it's fantastic um if if you're a geography teacher and you haven't seen it you're in for a real treat 
one of the things that struck me, this is the last thing I'll say about it now, because we will come back to it. But when I was teaching, very early on when I was teaching, there was a, an A-level question that was absolutely perfect, I thought, for my students. It was about Corrie's and Arette. And they came out of the exam. And I said, did you do that question? It was absolutely peachy. And I could see their faces form. They went, oh, God. Is that what the photograph was of? I didn't recognise it. Oh, no. And of course, this is before, this was before the internet. I started teaching when we had um, slate boards, of course. So they'd only seen pictures of these perhaps once or twice. They didn't recognise them in a different context. They'd seen the ones in that textbook. It, that was a real learning curve for me because I, then, I, I made sure that they saw these things from lots of different angles. And th it's just lovely on your website because you've got lots of different photographs of different angles and of different things. It's Anyway, we'll come back to that. It, fantastic. So your degree was in geography, but you're a glacial geologist now. It's, it's just not a field that many women have been into historically. I, I, ch I checked. It's not until the 1980s, really, that women produced more than a few percent of glaciology papers. So first of all, what got you into glaciation? I was very lucky because I had the opportunity to go to Iceland when I was 17 with an organisation called the British Schools Exploring Society. And that was, that was it. I went to Iceland camped on a glacier and that was it. <laughs> uh, so I went to university and studied geography and took all the modules I could in glaciation and then I went and studied the MSc in Quaternary Science at Royal Holloway uh, which I now teach on and am director for and that covered a lot of glaciation uh, and then went and did my PhD at Durham University on glaciation on the British ice sheet uh, in the Department of Geography there. So it was, it's really been a, a, a love of, of this ever since I was a, a teenager really. Um, they, I find glaciers inspiring, I find them beautiful, um, I find them fascinating and I also think that they're so critically important and relevant to us today so we, we, we have to study them and understand them. So I feel that the work has importance and relevance to society as well. Well yes it's um, a particularly because your area of study is looking at the interaction between glaciers and climate, which brings us into all sorts of issues. Um, so you look at that over multiple timescales. What's that involve? So this is really looking at some of the different methods I use. So I, I do a lot of work reconstructing glacier change over the last few, last few decades. And that's really looking at satellites, satellite images of glaciers, aerial photographs of glaciers, or even over shorter timescales, taking uh, unmanned aerial vehicles or drones and looking at really short-term change in the ice. So over days to weeks to months. Uh, so reconstructing how that glacier is behaving and evolving in response to climate change over uh, that particular time period. Um, so kind of 1970s is when we have the first satellite imagery, some aerial photographs from before then. Uh, and we can use things like numerical models that have the, the equations that govern how ice flows and the, the equations that govern how glacier ice is melting and accumulating uh, to link what we see in the glacier change to what we see in climate. So we can explicitly link them using these mathematical models. 
over longer timescales, if we go back to before the satellite era, if we want to understand what happened to glaciers before then, then we have to use glacial geology. So that means we have to map things like moraines, trim lines, uh, look at the sediments to understand how the glacier was behaving over a longer time series. And it's really important that we do that because the observational period is really short. We have satellite imagery from the 1970s, aerial photographs from the early 20th century and not much before that. So if we want to understand how the glaciers behave in different climate states, how they react to abrupt climate change or rapid climate change, if we want to understand what the thresholds and tipping points that force rapid change in the ice sheets, then we need to extend that observational period by looking at moraines and reconstructing the glacier at different times. And so a lot of what I do is I go into the field with my trusty trowel and my hammer and I walk these moraines and map them with my GPS and uh, take samples for dating those moraines. So radiocarbon samples, if there's the woody fragments in the moraine or perhaps taking samples of the rocks on the surface of the moraine and we can actually work out how long those rocks have been in that position on that moraine, how long they've been exposed to the atmosphere. And so you have the position of the glacier and a point in time. And if you can then have an independent measure of climate from an ice core record or a lake core or something, then you can say, well, when the temperature was this, the glacier was here and the temperature is now this and the glacier is here. And what does that mean? So we can look, that's what we mean when I say multiple timescales. What's interesting as well is that it's, um, it becomes investigative rather than the geography fieldwork where you stand there and are told by the teacher, now we're looking at a steep-sided, flat-bottomed glacial trough. Oh, I, how, how do we know? What's happened to produce it? Some of the work I think we've missed out on in the past um, is, is just looking at the theories that people had before when glaciation wasn't the process that people had I'd imagined it produced that valley. It was something else. Indeed, indeed. And in fact, it was some of the observations of scratched rocks in Scotland and the comparison to what we see right in front of glaciers in places like Norway that led some of our early academics to make that link and mm. step away from earlier theories that invoked huge floods to have a more process-based understanding of what affects our landscape and what shapes our landscape. And we, it's still important today to link process and form and use modern analogues. So a large part of our work as glacial geologists, even today, is to go to modern day glaciers and say, well, how, did, how does this landform get formed? What is the process here? And then you can understand what happens in the, in the British landscape, for example. I remember talking to Chris Clark a while ago about the formation of drumlins and um, he's modeling the, the formation with two uh, the two surfaces that are both of them mobile and trying to create the conditions that would produce a drumlin rather than a, um, a mega scale linear uh, um, a mega scale glacial lineation that's the one yeah. <laughs> thank you <laughs> i've forgotten yes and it's it, it, it's difficult. It, Drumlins are an enigma. Drumlins remain an enigma. 
and people like Chris have spent their careers working on them and they still remain a challenge to, to have a clear process. We can observe them in Antarctica. We can observe them forming underneath the ice sheet in Antarctica and we can monitor them year on year. We can see them moving. So we know they move. But modelling them and making creating a numerical model that forms them has remained a challenge. Yeah. Because a GCSE textbook or an A-level textbook will tell you exactly how they're formed. Yeah, the, the devil is ever is in the detail. <laughs> you talked there about work on the Antarctic Peninsula and, and looking at how drumlins are formed. You've done, you've got the three, you've got the, the Antarctic Peninsula, you've got the Patagonian ice sheet, and then you've got the last British Irish ice sheet. So three different areas. What are you doing largely in, in the Antarctic? What's, what's the focus and uh, how's, it, how's it work? Well, my work on the Antarctic Peninsula was largely focused towards understanding not only ice streams, but ice shelves over the last several thousand, several thousand years. So since really since the last glacial maximum, which was about 18,000 years ago. So we went to, I've done two seasons on James Ross Island and one season on Alexander Island. So James Ross Island is on the, um, the northeastern side of the Antarctic Peninsula. And it's an area today that's warming really rapidly and we're seeing really rapid ice shelf collapse and really rapid glacier recession. So ice shelves are these floating portions of the glacier. They are on the sea surface, they're floating and they receive ice from land glaciers flowing into them. So basically your glacier on land extends out over the sea and it forms this floating ice shelf. And these, these ice shelves have been disintegrating over the course of a single summer and they can take thousands and thousands of years to form. They're, you know, they're hundreds of meters thick. These are not ephemeral features, they're permanent features until they disintegrate. So we were interested in looking at the longer term time scale and James Ross Island is interesting because it has one of the largest ice free areas in the Antarctic Peninsula. So it's one of the few places you can actually go to study past ice sheet dynamics on land. Most of our information comes from sediment cores taken by ships on the sea. And they just give you like a spot or they give you the surface sediment, uh, they give you the geomorphology from the, from the superficial sediments, but they don't allow you to investigate it in as much detail as you can on land. And you get different, different data. So the, the field season on James Ross Island, one of them was seven weeks long. So we were camping, uh, very remote, miles from anyone. You have your radio, daily radio contact with uh, Rothera, which was about 200 kilometres away. Um, and we, we just, we had these little ATVs and we drove around the island on our ATVs and sampled rocks and looked at the geomorphology to understand what the ice sheet was doing during its last demise around 18,000 years ago, during a period of really rapid warming. And then we did a, we did a season on Alexander Island, which was very different. Alexander Island has these moraines formed at the margin of an ice shelf. So there's an ice shelf there now and it has these moraines and these moraines go up the, go up the hillside much higher than they were in the past. So in Alexander Island, it was more about understanding the past dynamics of the ice shelf and how that had, how that had behaved uh, and how it evolved from an ice stream, which was a grounded, vast, rapidly flowing corridor of ice to this floating ice shelf with water underneath it. 
Uh, so again, that was that was very remote. Um, we weren't allowed ATVs, so the whole season was on foot. So we all got very fit, walking around, carrying rocks around, and trying to understand how this ice shelf had behaved in the past. Just it, it spawns so many incredible stories. The last one I've just read was um, the the Michael Palin book on um, the ship, the Erebus. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I've read quite a few of Arctic explorers and Antarctic explorers, and it. It sounds really challenging. It's a, a desperate environment to work in to do field research. Yeah. You can you can be fairly comfortable if you are able to to go with go without your your mod cons. So uh, the tents are pretty warm. It's not like you're cold all the time. The tent, even if it's minus twenty, you've got the right clothes so you can stay warm. It's um, Wainwright's. Um, I think it's his. Was it Wayne Rice? There's no such thing as bad clothes. Oh yeah, just just yeah. No, sorry, there's no such, no thing, such thing as bad, 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 bad clothes. Just bad yeah. clothes. Yeah. Now the British Antarctic Survey, who were giving us logistical support, they have they have good kit, and we were very comfortable. I think the, one of the main challenges is there's not very much water because it's minus twenty, or the water's frozen. So if you want to drink water, you have to melt it first. So pretty much the whole time you're in the tent, you're melting water. If you're, if you're at base camp, you're melting water and you still only just have enough to eat and drink. So there's no spare water for washing. Not that you'd want to go outside and get wet in minus 20 degrees, really. <laughs> um, there's not much spare water for doing anything, really. So everything is pretty, pretty spare. Mm. You have to make water. The last thing you do before you go to bed is you make water and then you put that in that warm water in a bottle and then you put that in your sleeping bag and then it doesn't freeze overnight and you've got a hot water bottle. Excellent. <laughs> so from there, let's go to Patagonia, which is an area I've been to a couple of times, but I didn't know anything about the Patagonian ice sheet. This is quite huge and quite interesting. Just tell us a little bit about that. Well, Patagonia is, is very, uh, it's a very beautiful landscape. It's very different to Antarctica because it's a temperate landscape. So there's forest right up to the glacier. So you can walk in shorts to the glacier in the summer. It's quite pleasant. And then there's just forests everywhere. So we've done a few seasons there trying to understand what's going on in Patagonia at the last glacier maximum. Patagonia is interesting because it's very a very, very long, thin ice sheet. Uh, has, a, has, a, has a very wide latitudinal range. And that's interesting because the climate of the southern hemisphere is strongly controlled by these winds that go around the Antarctic continent. So these southern hemisphere westerlies, they go round and round the Antarctic continent. And these southern hemisphere westerlies, they move north and south. And as they move north and south, they strongly influence ocean currents and dynamics in Antarctica and in Patagonia. So the Patagonian ice sheet even though it's not a particularly large ice sheet when we compare it to the ice sheets in North America or Europe or Antarctica, it's really important because it's climatically very sensitive to changes in these winds. And that helps us understand large-scale climatic systems like the Southern Annular Mode, which is currently in a positive phase. And this positive phase is driving changes in ocean currents and really rapid melting in Antarctica. So we've been looking for quite a while now at understanding the Patagonian ice sheet. But there's an interesting challenge in Patagonia because in Patagonia, you have these huge lakes today 
And these huge lakes today, they drain west into the Pacific Ocean. So they're on the eastern side of the Patagonian ice sheet, but they drain through gaps in it to the other side. And when you grow an ice sheet, these lakes grew and became dammed by the ice and they drained in the other direction towards the Atlantic. So they drained east towards the Atlantic. So as your ice sheet grew, these lakes developed. And then as the ice sheet shrank, different coals became available for drainage of these lakes and you get these different layers in the lakes. So if you go now to somewhere like uh, uh, Koyeki near the northern Patagonian ice field and you look out over Lago General Carrera, you see these big steps in the landscape, which are the former lake levels, these huge flat delta tops and shorelines that are some hundred meters above the current surface of the lake. So it's very, it's really, really visual, these, how important an impact these lakes had on the landscape. Um, and so trying to link these ice dynamics to the southern hemisphere westerlies is complicated by the presence of the lakes, because the lakes induce carving and they change the dynamics. So that's been a really interesting puzzle that we're still working on. And I expect we'll be working on that for the rest of my career, I expect. Oh, I wish I'd had you with me when I went, but <laughs> when we were looking at the Grey Glacier and then uh, the most bizarrely named Bernardo O'Higgins Glacier. Yeah. It was, a, it was, it's just an amazing landscape, amazing area to visit. It's a very beautiful landscape. I want to talk to you a little bit closer home now and about uh, your work on the, the Pleistocene and Devensian ice sheets. And that's different, but related. So... What are you doing? What's, what's the work there? So my work on the British ice sheet uh, is largely focused on Northern England, really. Uh, I did my PhD research on the coastal exposures of glacial sediments in County Durham. Um, so there are some fun, if you're ever in County Durham or Northumberland, and you go to the beach and you look back at the cliffs behind you, you'll see these wonderful glacial sediments and if you've ever seen the film get carter that was one of my field sites and i recommend you watch get carter and there's a scene where it goes out in the colliery waste trolley over my over my phd field site <laughs> so um these these sediments some of them are very special because some of them date not only from the last glaciation but from a much older glaciation and they're just fragments really uh, they're very rare fragments, but they give us insights into the evolution of this, of our landscape and the evolution of the ice sheet under very different climatic situations and very different time periods. And more recently, I've been working on the ice streams of the British ice sheet. So the, the British ice sheet was drained by these fast flowing corridors of ice, these ice streams. And the traditional view would be that these ice streams were quite stable and they were persistent features of the ice sheet but we now understand that they did all sorts of interesting things and they were different aspects of the ice sheet would dominate at different times and as the areas of accumulation or the the, the areas of greatest ice thickness evolved these ice streams would would change and if you go to perhaps somewhere near in the pennines where you get these big corridors of ice through the Pennines near places like Barnard Castle. Um, you would see there are drumlins there, 
these elongate hills that form underneath the ice. And the drumlins have got more drumlins on top of them. They've got drumlins po pointing in different directions and they tell us that the ice stream flowed in one direction and then it turned around and flowed in the other direction. Almost 180 degree difference. It flowed west and then it started flowing, it flowed towards the east and then it started flowing towards the northwest uh, in the Vale of Eden towards the Lake District. So combining this geomorphological mapping, our understanding of the drumlins with dating, updating rocks that have been left behind by the ice, we can understand in a lot more detail about how this ice sheet was behaving. And we can link that to things like ice, uh, temperatures from ice cores in Greenland and understand uh, how changes in the North Atlantic influence this ice sheet and what a sensitive ice sheet it is. And it's really important because again, it can come back to Antarctica because there are parts of the British ice sheet that bear great similarity to the Antarctic ice sheet today. And so if we want to understand how an ice sheet behaves in response to rapid climate change, we can use the British ice sheet as, a, as an analog or a model to understand how the West Antarctic ice sheet might behave in the future. So it has a great deal of relevance to things like present day sea level rise which might affect everybody in the United Kingdom today. What's also important is that working as you do, you're creating new knowledge and for, for students to understand that things continually change. I said to, uh, in an earlier podcast when I was talking to, uh, to Fiona that uh, our uh, chief executive of the Geographical Association, Professor David Lambert, always used to talk about uh, geographers should be thinking and making decisions with confident uncertainty, confident that they've made a decision with the facts that they've got in front of them, but the uncertainty to know that, that geography particularly is dynamic changes, and we might have to entirely change our thinking as something new comes along. And that's what your work is prompting us to do, is to, to take that and think, well, that doesn't fit to the textbook that I've been told. There's something else going on here. I wonder what it is. And that inquiry is, I think, it's, it's really important. It's, it's really, it provides a challenge for A-level students who, who might sometimes assume, well, just the, what's the point? You just told me it. Is that it? Well, it isn't, is it? There's much more. Indeed. You. Indeed. And also understanding that just because something has uncertainties doesn't mean it's wrong. Or it may be... You, may, you have to understand the bounds or the limits of our knowledge and know what we know and know what we don't know and be able to make a decision based on that. It's an important yes. skill, important life skill. Well, it, well, it is. And, and field work's a messy business. So you get something and students would sometimes come to me and say, oh, I've got it wrong. Um, well, no, your sampling was right and you had a large enough sample. So let's, just, that's not wrong. Let's just try and explain why rather than, oh, it doesn't fit the textbook, I must be wrong. There's something else I'd like to ask you about, because I, I, I was really interested to read your article in the, it was on the Conversation website, and you called it, the world's mountain water towers are melting, putting 1.9 billion people at risk. And I thought, well, I'd better follow this up, because I've not heard the term water tower. I've, obviously, that one's passed me by. But it's a potentially catastrophic and when I was in Lima we I'd read something there about how much of Lima's water is produced from glaciers and that's what these water towers are so 
can you just explain a little bit about yeah yeah for sure so mountains produce water mountains produce water because they force air masses to rise and condense and cause precipitation so you get rain around your mountain and if your mountain is is high enough and big enough that rain will be stored as snow and ice and possibly in lakes so that you get these stores of water in mountains and worldwide there are many people who are dependent on the water from these mountains and places like Lima that you mentioned in Peru or places like the Himalaya have rather like rather as opposed to the UK which has a kind of a winter and a summer they have more of a dry season and a wet season and they have periods of the year with very little rainfall and so they rely on water from the mountains and so this water in the mountains it falls in the wet season and it gets stored as snow and lake and glacier ice and these glaciers and these snowpacks then melt in the dry season and provide water for downstream communities and they can provide you know it's very variable but they can provide a really significant proportion of the uh, downstream water so in places like uh, the Himalaya in places like the Indus Basin or the Tarim Basin in the Himalaya the water from these mountain regions is exceptionally important and there are something like 250 million people living in just these basins dependent on the water from these mountains mountain water towers so we call them water towers because just like a water tower they're storing the water yeah. and they release it when we need it so what we what we did in a piece of recent research that i was involved with is we looked we took a, lot, a number of outputs of different data sets. So we had remote sensing data sets and we had numerical model data sets and we had all these different things. And we calculated in every single mountain in the world how much water was produced by the mountain and how much water was stored by the mountain and how much water was released by the mountain. So we worked out how much water these mountains were supplying to downstream communities. And then we looked at well, how useful is this water? Is it needed? So in places like Iceland, there's a lot of water produced and stored, but it's quite a rainy place and the water is not necessarily that important for the people living downstream. Whereas in places like Peru or uh, parts of North America or even in Europe, uh, in, in Switzerland, that water is really important for things like irrigation, for domestic use, for industry and for hydropower. So a lot of hydropower is produced in the Alps and that water comes from the mountain glaciers and the snow that falls on these mountains. Uh, and we, were, we calculated that 1.9 billion people worldwide are dependent on these water towers, on these mountain water towers. That's, that's a, a third of the world's population. Almost a third of the world's population is dependent on this. And it's not just people far away, it's people in Europe as well as people in, in, other, in other parts of the world. And then we looked at what are the threats to these water towers and climate change is a significant threat to these water towers. We are currently about 1.1 degrees centigrade of warming and uh, the Paris agreements have uh, asked us that we cap warming at 1.5 degrees centigrade. If we go much beyond 1.5 degrees centigrade, the glaciers here will significantly shrink. 
and we have this concept of peak meltwater. If you have a glacier of a certain size, in the dry season, the glacier will, will melt and release water. And as the glacier starts to shrink, if the mass balance is negative and the glacier is melting more than it's receiving in snowfall every year, the amount of meltwater it produces will increase. You think, great, I can plant more avocados. This is brilliant. I can, have, I can irrigate my field. This is fantastic. But eventually the glacier will get so small, it won't be able to produce so much meltwater. So you've gone past your peak meltwater and you're now on the downward limb. And that means that in the dry season, you're likely to have significant shortages of water in most of these places. Um, and if we go to the higher end scenarios, if we have two degrees of warming by uh, 2100 AD, uh, we would see really significant loss of glaciers worldwide and really significant water shortages worldwide for these people. So it's really important to uh, make the link between climate change and glaciers and understand that water from glaciers is one of the most immediate and significant impacts that could happen worldwide in the event of significant climate change. It's threaded through that whole conversation, hasn't it, the link between glaciation and climate change. So it doesn't just produce I say just produce, but it produces awe-inspiring landscapes. Landscapes that just take your breath away. And I think that's important in its own right. But then it's hugely important in terms of its, our better understanding and the, the implications of climate change. Let's talk about your Arctic Glaciers website. I think we should, because it's an amazing resource. Um, it's probably had more than this now. 2.9 million page views is what I read. I bet, yep. it's, I bet it's up to 3 million now. I think so, yeah. It's won the Curry Fund Certificate for Excellence for Geological Education. It's constantly updated, by, largely by you. It's a fantastic resource. And, and if you're a teacher who's never come across it, you, like I said earlier, you've got a treat in store. It's called Antarctic Glaciers, but actually it's just a fantastic resource for teachers and students of glaciation anywhere throughout the world. Your examples are from all over the place. There's a, a section for students on, um, I'm just going to click on it now and have a look at it, because you've got, you've got the glossary, you've got testing your knowledge, you've got ask a scientist, various study skills, resources for teachers. It just goes on and on. It's absolutely huge. How did you manage to fit that all in with all the rest of your work? Uh, well, it's, it's a constant challenge and if I, ha I could easily work full-time on the website, but I have another full-time job to do as well. Um, so I, uh, it's really a labour of love. I've been writing this website and blogging and writing things for the website for about eight years now. Um, I called it Antarctic Glaciers because when I started I was doing a lot of Antarctic research and I wanted to help people understand the stories behind the headlines and I would read things in the newspaper about Pine Island Glacier and marine ice sheet instability and people may have seen Thwaites Glacier and this huge project currently going on on Thwaites Glacier and I thought well hang on nobody's told anybody what marine ice sheet instability is nobody knows what an ice stream is people are getting confused between sea ice and ice shelves you know this is this is no good at all and so I felt there was a real gap for accessible content that helped people understand what was going on in the news and help people understand what, what it meant. Um, 
And so I started to blog and write uh, articles that uh, I felt were, were needed. And I quite often used it to facilitate my own research. So I may be thinking about uh, a certain process or a certain thing and trying to understand it and doing a lot of reading. And writing a blog article often really helped me consolidate that knowledge and really made sure I understood it. Um, and I found very quickly that if I didn't understand something, a lot of other people also didn't understand that thing. And so that was, there was a need for writing these articles. And then as the process went on and I learned more about what I was doing and I became more effective at it, I started more recently to target school teachers and school students more. So there is content on here that is probably beyond school level, so maybe more undergraduate level. And there's certainly content here that's not on the syllabus, but I think it's interesting and I think it's important and I, I'd like to write about it. But I've made an effort to target content from the school curriculum. And that's an ongoing process. There is still plenty more that we can do to write. And it's largely focusing on the post-16 content, but we're currently working on developing more uh, content for Key Stage 3. So younger students, pre-GCSE students, maybe on Antarctica, maybe on glaciation. Because uh, I think there's some really great ways in which we could get some inspiring content on there for students. Um, I felt when I was looking around on the internet recently, there's just not that much stuff available for teaching glaciation. There's not that many good resources. And so hopefully this will be a useful resource for anyone who's thinking about teaching glaciation. And I've also done a lot of work to try and compile resources that other people have made. So for example, there are virtual field trips and virtual glaciers. Uh, there's a website where you can go on a virtual field trip and so linked extensively to that to help people find it. Um, and there are other widgets and apps that people have made that help you maybe make a, make a model glacier, that you can have your model glacier on your browser running. And so trying to bring all those resources together uh, and, and highlight them to teachers. So they have the Antarctic glaciers, which is a bit like an online textbook. And then they also have these interactive features and resources they can use in the classroom to hopefully get students really excited about glaciers and learn about what they mean. You must have talked to teachers because the, the section on misconceptions, I think is just spot on. The, uh, the one you talk about with ice, students thinking that ice moves backwards when a glacier retreats, that's just perennial. Mine said that 40 years ago. And yeah, well, some, a lot of this is based on my own experiences of teaching undergraduates. So I have undergraduate students who start with me and I teach them from 18 onwards. Um, and so I, I know what, they, what misconceptions <laughs> they come to university with. So can start there. And I see a lot in the news as well. I see people confusing things like ice shelf and sea ice all the time. So uh, glaciers moving backwards, I see that often is a misconception. It makes sense. The glacier is retreating. You might well think it goes backwards. Well, I used to use, um, there was a TV programme, you might remember it, I'm not sure, but I don't know quite how far back it goes, called The Generation Game. And it had a little conveyor belt that went yeah. past. And yeah. you had to remember what the things were. Yeah, and if you remembered them, didn't you win them? <laughs> yes, if you remembered them, you won them. So, um, yeah. stereo record player, cuddly toy, dip, dip, dip. And, yeah. and they all fell off the end. Yeah. Uh, so it continued to move, but the end was stationary. Um, mm -hmm. And I used that, or, or little puppies, just little Little furry toys going along, um, yeah. but it, it's such a. It is difficult because we talk about the glacier retreating, so uh, students just imagine it, yeah, and going backwards. 
And if you think about it, when we use the term retreat, when what other contexts do we use the term retreat? We use the term retreat in army retreats. Yeah. And if an army retreats, it turns around and it runs away. That's what retreat is. The army turns around and runs away. So I, I try and talk more about glaciers receding because they're just they're they're still flowing, but they're losing so much mass that they're melting more at the end, so they're they're flowing. So I think of it more a bit like a hairline, because your hair is still growing. It's still always growing, but it's falling out a bit more at the front than at the back. Yeah, <laughs> <So>. thanks. <laughs> Mine's receded entirely and the, <laughs> the glacier has gone. Um, probably a bit like Scotland. There's a couple of questions I want to finish off with, with you because we're, we're nearing our, the end of our time. But I've at times been told by teachers that glaciation is not particularly important to study at school. And so I wonder, just as an academic who's steeped in it, how you feel about that? I, I obviously think that glaciation is the most important thing that any, any geographer would want to study. Um, but objectively, glaciation is a critical component of climate change. And if we want to think about climate change, we have to think about glaciation. If you read the IPCC, the International Panel on, on uh, Climate Change, there are multiple chapters based on glacier ice and the ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica and how they will behave in response to climate change. The Antarctic ice sheet presents a huge threat of sea level rise, as does the Greenland ice sheet. And the melting glaciers worldwide threaten people with water resources. They also threaten people with hazards. There are hazards associated with growing lakes that can fail and catastrophically cause floods downstream. So the glaciation, understanding that the ice in our world is absolutely fundamental to understanding how climate change is going to affect us. If we want to have any hope of understanding what the impacts of climate change are, we have to understand the glaciation of our world. We have to understand ice. We have to understand how glaciers form, how they flow and how they melt and how they will retreat or recede and how they will uh, cause threats to humanity. So I think it, there's an absolutely fundamental link to understanding climate change. There's also a fundamental link because Britain is an ice age landscape. Virtually all of Britain is affected by glaciation. The parts of Britain that were beyond the reach of the ice sheet, which is just the southernmost parts of Britain, which does include London, were strongly affected by permafrost and periglacial processes. Um, so the whole landscape of Britain is a glaciated landscape. And so if we want to understand why our mountains look the way they do, if we want to understand why Britain is the shape it is, then we need to, we need to go and look at it. And I think we're very fortunate that we have this glaciated landscape. And most people would not be too far from some glacial features. There is a, a map that you can look at. It's called the Britice map, briticemap.org. It is all the mapped land, glacial landforms in Britain. And so most people, I think, could be within a few hours' drive of, a, of something that they could go and look at, even if it's a periglacial landform. I think that glaciation is also, it's awe-inspiring. It's glaciers. Glaciers are beautiful. The Understanding how large they are can be challenging for people unless they've been to see one and they've realized it goes as far as the eye can see in all directions um, and I think I think that uh, there's such a fundamental part of our world 
and such so important to our world that it's it's a real shame if students aren't exposed to them. Well, if I was still teaching glaciation, I'd clip that little bit out that you've just said there, and I'd play it to my students when we first started out. It was absolutely fantastic. And I think we ought to do a link to the Britice uh, website, actually, because their, uh, their interactive map is, uh, is constantly changing and growing and developing, and it's a fantastic resource for knowing what's glacial in your area and just clicking on it and giving you the information. Hey, thanks, Beth, and that was, that was a really interesting session. Thank you very much. I'm certain A-level teachers of geography will find it valuable. We'll put all the links in from all the things that we've talked about. That was really wonderful. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very oh, much. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Mark from the membership team here at the GA. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of JogPod, produced for you by the Geographical Association. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to JogPod on your podcast app. And if you're interested in learning more about what the GA has to offer, head over to our website at geography.org.uk.